You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. Joe Henley is a freelance writer and author. The last time we had Joe on Talking Taiwan, we spoke about his book, Busan Busi. In this episode, I spoke with him about his latest book, Mergrante, which has recently been translated into Chinese. Joe shared how the idea for this book about the plight of migrant workers in Taiwan came to him, all the research that was involved, why he's donating all of his proceeds from the sales of Migrante, and how his band nearly got arrested when they were performing in the Philippines. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATOA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATOA was founded in 1988, and its mission is... 1. To evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity. 2. To oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality. 3. To fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs. 4. To contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan. 5. To reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NATOA, visit their website, www.natwa.com. Without further ado, here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Hi, Felicia. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back. First of all, I want to say congratulations on the release of the Chinese-language version of Migrante. I've seen all of your posts that you've been sharing on Facebook. It really must feel like um, your book gets a second life and a new release all over again. Yeah, it's it's like I've been able to relive the birth of my child again. It's it's been a really nice feeling, you know. I'm going to the bookstores and casually, like, kind of laying back in the weeds and watching people <laughs> pick it up and and try and you know even take it to the counter to to get the book. I mean, it's it's been awesome. It's it's awesome to see like local people actually getting to read the book and hopefully learn something new from it and, you know, maybe educate themselves about the situation regarding migrant workers in Taiwan and learn things that they weren't aware of before. Yeah. And so how did this all happen? Like, what is it, uh, what needs to happen or what does it take to get an English book translated into Chinese? Well, in this case, I, I had been trying to approach some, some publishers in Taiwan on my own and I had gotten some responses and the general response was, we don't think this is a good fit for the local market. And and that's as much explanation as they would provide. So, I mean, the, the strong hint there was that people don't really want to read about this. Now, what ended up happening was, um, it was some part luck, part making my own luck, I guess. I, I was invited to a networking event uh, by my friend and uh, sometimes collaborator, Roger Chung, who is a, a film director here. And we worked on some documentary projects before, and he said, "Hey, I've got this networking event. It's going to be, a, you know, a lot of, a lot of heavy hitters and stuff like that. There, why don't you come down and hang out?" So, I went there, and there was all these people there from the publishing industry, music industry, film industry, and there's guys that just got multi-million dollar deals from Netflix, and then there's me, the obscure foreigner author. Um, so I, I just kind of. I, I did what I usually did, like back in the day, like the junior high school dance. I hung back by the wall. I was a wallflower, and then Roger 
my good buddy goes up to the front and he starts making a speech and he's talking about me. I had no idea he was going to do this. He was introducing me and he was introducing what I do here. And then he said, Hey Joe, why don't you come up here? Why don't you, why don't you say a few words? I had no idea this was going to (laughs) happen. So I had no, I had nothing prepared. I had no idea what to say. So I just kind of winged it. And I started talking about my book because that was kind of the latest, biggest thing that I had done. And I I think I blacked out for a little while, but when I came back around, I was done. And then it was like the mingling portion of the evening. And this gentleman came up to me, he handed me a business card and he said, Hey, I'm from reading times publishing. I want to put out your book in Mandarin. And I didn't know how seriously to take him at the time because, you know, sometimes at these events you meet people and they're like, Oh yeah, we should totally work together. And then nothing happens. But he said, yeah, he's, uh, email me the manuscript. And uh, I, I went home and my, my wife helped me craft uh, the pitch in Mandarin. She did a lot of work on it um, to, to present the book in the best possible terms. Sent that to him and he was absolutely true to his word. He's like, yeah, this all sounds good. We're going to do this. And, uh, and he did. <laughs> I, was very, I was very pleasantly surprised that uh, this actually, this is what led to the book coming out in Mandarin. That's amazing. Um, so have you had anyone who's read your book in both English and in the Chinese language version and give you feedback on the translated version to let you know what they think of the two versions? Uh, so far, the only person to, that has read both uh, is, is actually my wife. Um, she's, she, she was reading the English version. And then right now, actually, she is reading the, the Mandarin version. And all, she's told me, yeah, she thinks the translator uh, did a really good job. Um, apparently, it, she did sort of faithfully capture the style in which I wrote it uh, in English. And, and there's things, of course, that she has to localize and change. But um, the, the translator was um, eminently qualified to, to do this. She, she's the same woman. She does some of the Harry Potter books here and things like this. And she's been translating for, I oh, think, wow. Very nice. 30, 30 years or something. So she's, she's more than qualified to, to translate anything I've written for sure. So, um, yeah, the translation apparently was done, was done very well. So I'm, I'm really happy about that. Do you know if she, there were any challenges for her um, in translating it? Uh, if there were, actually, I'm, I'm not really aware of them. Um, there wasn't a lot of uh, communication between us. Uh, I, I was going through the publisher, and, the, and then she was also going through the publisher. And I think, for the most part, I mean, my, my style in writing the book, um, it, it was fairly straightforward, I think. Like, it was, there wasn't anything overly complicated, and anything else that she would need to know um, she, she's very comfortable in doing her own research and there's things that she can look up if she needs to look up. And so I don't think she needed that much or, or anything at all from me, really. She just took the manuscript and ran with it and, uh, yeah, apparently did, did a really excellent job. And I see that there's actually been a new book cover done for the Mandarin, uh, Chinese Mandarin language version. Um, can you talk about the two, diff- two book covers and how they differ? 
Yeah, the first cover, uh, the cover for the English version was done by my friend uh, Issa Pilipil in Manila, and she's uh, someone I got to know there through uh, the music scene, actually. About 10 years ago, the band I was in at the time, we went down to the Philippines to play some shows, and she was the guitar player in one of the bands that uh, we ended up playing with. And it turns out uh, she's also a really talented graphic artist, painter, she works in a lot of uh, sculptor actually as well. She works in a lot of different mediums and yeah, myself and her and, uh, and her partner, Ian, we all really hit it off. And actually when I went down there for reporting trips later, they'd be the ones that would pick me up at the airport and, sh- and take me around. And she did artwork for my band actually as well. First, uh, she did uh, one of our, some of our t-shirt designs and things like that. So when it came time to do the book, um, I contacted her straight away because a, you know, she's from the Philippines and the story is of a, the the protagonist is, is from there. And I knew she would get the themes that I was going for. And of course, culturally, linguistically, all, all of that, she would definitely understand and understand a lot better than I would. So I just gave her a basic, um, sort of outline for what I wanted for the cover. I, I wanted the scene from one of the cemetery communities that actually I had visited on one of my reporting trips there. There was, there was one of the cemeteries was actually right next to the sea. And I wanted the protagonist, Rizal, just looking out at the sea with the tombs visible on either side, looking out and seeing a fishing vessel out there on the distant water. And she just absolutely knocked it right out of the park. I mean, when she's, when she sent me this cover, I, I got absolutely teary eyed just, just looking at it. Um, I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how, well, I mean, I should have believed it because she's, she's amazing, but I just, I wasn't prepared for the, how striking, for how striking it was. Yeah. And that's great because I understand a lot of authors don't actually get to uh, have so much feedback on their book covers, especially if they go through a publisher. Yeah. Camphor just let me um, basically do whatever I I wanted within reason, of course. Um, But they, they knew I was, I was going to take it very seriously. And, um, and obviously it's in my best interest to have a cover that's striking and arresting. That's going to get people's attention. And that's what I felt this, this cover did for, for the international market. Now with the second cover, um, I actually, I had recommended that they just use the original because I was so enamored with the original cover, but they had said, well, we think for the local market, we do need to change it. We need to do something different. And of of course I'm going to listen to them because this is one of the oldest and biggest publishers in Taiwan. So they know what they're doing. So I said, okay, just, um, show me what you got basically once it's done and we'll take it from there. So they had sent me a couple of different versions. Now, one was more of a, um, well, nicer, I guess, and sort of somewhat closer to the original. It was more of just a normal kind of maritime scene, just water, boat. Uh, it's kind of, it's something pretty beautiful, actually. But then the second one that they sent me was the one that we uh, that actually ended up being the cover, which is the, the, the fish with the bloody mouth, with the hook through its mouth. Uh, it's very dark. Uh, it's got the, the red popping out in the text. It's got blood. And I, I wasn't sure which way to go because th- they were both uh, 
unique, they're very different, and they both send a very different message. And I showed it to a few different people. I showed it to my wife. I showed it to one of my friends who's also a writer here. And I was kind of leaning more towards the more beautiful, nicer cover. And they said, no, this one is really going to pop on the shelves. Like, this is what's going to get people's attention. It's, it's shocking. And the title in Mandarin is somewhat shocking as well. And that, I mean, you want something to just grab people's attention because, you know, the old saying, don't judge a book by its cover. Well, that's what people do when they go through the, they're walking through the bookstore. I mean, I do that when I'm walking through the bookstore, I, I see a cover that grabs my attention. I'm like, Oh, okay, what's this? Let's take a look. And then I flip it over and read the back of it. And then I look at a few pages, but it's the cover that gets you. So that's what we ended up going with. Um, and, and I'm really happy with it actually, because I, I have actually gone to the bookstore and I've watched people just casually walking by and they stop when they see it. And that's exactly what I wanted. So it's, it's a bit shocking. It's a bit gory, but uh, I think it, it gets the job done. Yeah, I have to agree with you. It's actually kind of funny. Um, Gus was visiting New York recently, and I went with uh, him and his wife and son to Strand Bookstore here in New York City. And I found myself looking at the books and exactly what you said. You look at the cover, you look at the title. If you don't know anything about it, that's what strikes you for sure. Can you tell me about the reporting coverage that you did about the graveyards in the Philippines, which is what led you to write this book? Oh, uh, that's, yeah, that's one of the things that led me to write the book. Actually, the thing that led me to write the book was uh, getting contacted by a, um, a caregiver here in, in Taipei uh, first. That, that's what happened. She contacted me. Her name was uh, Jasmine Sanchez. Okay. And she had just found me via social media and she, she knew my name by seeing it in the Taipei Times where I had a, I had a music column at the time. This is late 2014, early 2015. And she had seen my name in there as a reporter, mostly working on music stuff. But um, she had also been involved in the underground music scene back in Manila. So perhaps maybe she saw something of a kindred spirit uh, of kind of rebellion because I was mostly writing about punk and metal stuff. So she just messaged me on Facebook. She said, hey, I've got some people. Uh, we want to get our stories told. And she didn't tell me that much more than that. So I, I wasn't sure what she was um, what she was all about. But she said, meet us at Taipei Main Station this Sunday, and we'll, we'll talk. And I said, okay. So I went down there. She had brought about 15 of her uh, fellow caregivers, oh, wow. um, okay. women all from the Philippines, who were working in Taiwan caring for the elderly. And one by one, they all told me these stories about how they had been uh, taken advantage of, financially exploited. Uh, some of them had been um, sexually assaulted or abused. And they all wanted their stories told. They wanted people to know what's going on. So that's what led to the first article. Uh, later on, a couple of years later, um, I went back, I went to Manila to do that, uh, what you were talking about, the story on the, on the cemeteries, because I'd heard about these communities uh, where people were making their homes just in the, the mausoleums and the tombs of the public cemeteries in Manila, because the, some of these tombs are large enough where you can take shelter in them and get out of the elements and you can have something of a normal home there. 
Uh, so I went down there with uh, my friend and collaborator, the photographer Paul Rachi. Uh, he's from the States, and he was kind of based in Taiwan at the time and bouncing around. But once in a while, we'd do, a sto- do some stories here and there. And we basically, for a couple of weeks, we just toured around these various uh, public cemeteries in Manila. We had our local uh, fixer there. And in every community that we went into, we would have somebody from that community take us around and introduce us, tell people what we were all about, and we'd get to know them. And they would share their stories with us about how they either ended up there or, in some cases, they were just born and raised within these communities. And I found their stories very striking, striking in the same way that I found the stories of the women that I had talked to that day at Main Station, in that they weren't looking at all for any sort of pity. They weren't looking at all for people to feel sorry for them. And they weren't necessarily looking for anything in the form of like a handout at all. They just said, look, we just want the agency to be able to decide our own future. We just want to be able to do the things that everybody else can do in society, which is to work, to earn our place in society and to secure a stable future. That's, that's all they wanted. And they just wanted the basic dignity of being able to do that. And that stuck with me. And so when I went back to Taiwan again, just after that, after that brief um, couple of weeks, I decided I wanted to make my main character for Migrante from one of these places, uh, just because I also felt that those communities should have some representation in the story as well. And hopefully people could learn something about those communities and the strength of those people, the determination of those people as well through this story, even though the, the, that portion of the story that takes place in the cemeteries, it's only at the beginning and at the very end of the story. Still, I felt that's where my character has to come from um, because I just wanted to show to the world the determination of these people and and their strength. Yeah, I definitely think that's a lesser known because the migrant worker situation, uh, whether it's the fishing, ones working on the fishing boat, domestic workers, so on, has been getting a lot in the media recently, in the Taiwan media. But I don't think we hear so much from this community that you're talking about, these people that live in the graveyards in the uh, Philippines. Was there any additional research involved? Like, were there other people that you had to interview or other research you had to do once you actually started writing the novel? I was, um, my, my reporting work on the subject of migrant workers in Taiwan was ongoing as I was writing the book. So I, I was doing several features uh, for different publications. So I was always talking to migrant workers themselves, um, first and foremost. Um, I, I'm not sure how many I actually interviewed, but um, in, in total, in, in the, say, five years that I was working on the book, but I'm going to say anywhere between 70 and 80 interviews uh, with different migrant workers working in factories, uh, working in private homes uh, as caregivers, and fishermen as well. Also, I was talking to different NGOs 
in Taiwan, the Elan Migrant Fishermen's Union primarily, and the Serve the People Association, who assist migrant workers who have fallen on hard times in Taiwan. They might need help uh, filing legal cases. They might need uh, shelter, a place to stay after they leave an employer who has been abusive or manipulative. So I was speaking with them. I also went back to the Philippines again for a second reporting trip to get more familiarity with the place places that these workers come from. And at that time, I was reporting on the, the drug war that was going on in, uh, in Manila and in primarily, mostly in the poorest parts of the city. It was, it was basically a war on poverty. You weren't seeing middle class or upper class drug users or pushers being arrested or being summarily slaughtered the way that they were in the disadvantaged areas of the city. So I went back down there for another uh, couple of weeks to report on that, to talk to people there and gain some more familiarity with the culture, with the customs and just, and find out about how life is lived basically in, in the poor areas of the city where people are not so um, privileged as they are in other portions of it. And certainly not so privileged as, as someone like myself. Uh, so the research was, was always ongoing. The interviews were always ongoing as the book was, was being written to inform, to inform the plot of the book and to inform uh, the, the basis for the story to make sure that it was, as close to reality as it could possibly be while still being basically like a composite work of fiction. Um, all, all the stories that I heard and that I took from these different places and people that I talked to all went into creating the characters and the plot of the book. Right. And do you know if the situation that you mentioned, the war on drugs, there was really like a war on the poorest communities, if any of that has changed or if there's any reform or anything being done about that? Um, no. I, from what I know, I mean, it, it's it's not, um, it's, it's I, I believe it's quieted down. Um, it's, it's nowhere near as dire as it was a few years ago when I was there, because when I was there, it was, it was quite awful because the the police operations um, were daily and nightly occurrences where they were storming into these communities. And basically anyone who was involved in any way in the drug trade, even just people who were using um, shabu or, or, or amphetamine, which was primarily what they were after, they had a the police and anyone whom the police hired uh, for what they refer to as extrajudicial killings, or e EJKs as they called them there, they had a license to kill. They had a free range to execute whomever they pleased, and there would be no questions asked. And we and we quickly found out that there were no questions asked. Yeah, there was no effort made whatsoever to confirm that any of these killings were in any way justified. It was just this person was involved in the drug trade. They deserved whatever they got. End of story. And it was, it was quite, uh, well, to say the least, disconcerting to walk into that and to see this happening every day. And 
it, it did have a lot. It, it had quite widespread support in some circles, um, even within the communities where these operations were happening. In some, we we met. I met up with one family whose son was was murdered by the police, and the, the son was a drug user. He was not. He was not selling, distributing anything like that. Uh, he was executed one night by the police, and we were there. Uh, myself and and Paul Rachi, the photographer, were there when it happened. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And in the immediate aftermath of of the killing, the the family said, "We're glad he's dead uh, because he was an addict, and as such, he had been making our lives a living hell for for many years." And so that was interesting to see. But then there was also, of course, many, many other families who lost children, fathers, mothers to these police operations. And they were, of course, devastated. Um, they did not want this to happen. They did not need this to happen. If it was a case where somebody was an addict, they needed treatment. They needed, right. they needed help. They didn't need a bullet, uh, but a bullet is what they got from Duterte's death squads that were running amok throughout the city, and all these uh, hired hitmen and hit women that were also given free reign to basically do whatever they wanted for uh, for a fee. They were, you know, hired killers. Um, so yeah, that was it. Was it was very uh, intense trip it was um eye-opening uh for somebody like me coming from a place as safe one of the safest places in the world taipei um quite literally i think it's ranked number two behind tokyo as the safest place in the world a place where i can walk down any street at any time of day or night and never have to worry about anything uh anything bad happening a place where if you don't go looking for trouble trouble will probably never find you. And to a place like that, where you could be walking down the wrong street at the wrong time of day, and you could, you could be taken out just like that. Uh, so it just, it, it was a reminder that the reality that I live in, it's not the reality. It's just one. It's just one of many in this world that we live in and many of them are not so safe and not so predictable and not so nice as, as the one that I inhabit. Actually, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on uh, Marcos Jr. being elected in the Philippines since we're talking about that. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Dynastic politics. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I don't, well, I do see how it happens. I mean, we, we see it happening all over the world now with the rise of, uh, you know, populist right-wing politicians. Uh, Of course, you have your own example in the States. Uh, We don't need to say his name, but everybody knows who we're talking about. Um, And in the Philippines, of course, yeah, I mean, we just had Duterte, uh, who, in my opinion, was a sociopath and a lunatic. Um, I had actually, uh, I, I met one of his sons, uh, when I had gone down to, really, yeah, to, to when I on that same tour where I met Isa, the artist, we went down to Davao, uh, which was the city where Duterte was the mayor at the time, and we were playing a show there. 
And the show was at this outdoor bar and I'm sure there was no permits. We definitely didn't have the proper visas to play shows there. We just went down as tourists because that's just what you do. And so we're, we're a metal band. So we're making a lot of noise, of course. And this bar was right next to a very quite new and very posh uh, real estate development. And I'm pretty sure somebody called the police. Now, at the time, Davao was also the center of uh, the Al-Qaeda chapter in the Philippines. So there were military patrols all over the city. And one of those military patrols marched right into the middle of our show <laughs> with their, I don't know, machine guns. Oh, wow. I, I'm not a gun guy. I don't know what kind of guns they were, but they were big <laughs> machine guns. And they came into the show. And I was scared. I was like, okay, we're going to jail. Like, I'm up on stage. I got my hands up. I'm like, let's, okay, we're going to prison. I'm going to Philippines jail. <laughs> this is it. This is how it ends. But then this kid, this kid comes over, marches straight up to the leader of this military troop, and they just start talking. They're talking for a couple of minutes, and then the soldier extends his hand, shakes the kid's hands, and says, okay, boys, let's go, and they leave. I walk over to another guy there. I was like, what the hell was that? What just happened? And they're like, oh, yeah, that's that's the mayor's son. And he just told the soldier, he said, do you know who I am? The soldier said, yes. And in the, again, this kid said, I would appreciate it as a consideration to my family if you would allow this show to continue. <laughs> and that was all he needed to oh, say. Wow. That's that's how it worked. <laughs> that, that, that's how it worked at the time. And yeah, that was uh, I don't know. I don't know which son of Duterte's that was, but that was one of his kids who was fortunately for us at the time, a heavy metal fan. Um, but that was an eye opening, that was an eye opening thing to see like how things work there, you know, familial connections, power, politics, uh, all he had to say was, do you know who I am? And that was enough. So, I mean, I understand how power can be passed down through the generations because I mean, that's all, that's how it's always worked. Would I vote for the son of a former kleptocrat no um i would not see how that would be in my best interest but i can see how people become enamored with such families i mean there is that element of uh fascination with with wealth with power and people look at families like the marcos family and they might think, well, you know, if I just work hard enough, if I put my nose to the grindstone, maybe I could become like them someday. Maybe I could become rich, wealthy, powerful, a leader, somebody people look up to. And so they see that as aspirational. They see that as something they want to become. They see that as an, as an example to follow. Personally, I don't. But I, that, that also comes from privilege as well, because I never had to grow up. I never had to grow up poor. I never had to grow up wondering where my next meal was going to come from. Maybe if I did, I would look up to people like the Marcos family who never had to worry about something like that. Whose only concern, well, financially was, I mean, like, what are we, what, I mean, we can buy anything today. What, what should we buy? What should we own? What should we take? That's the only thing they ever had to worry about. So I can, de I can definitely see how people who grow up in a position of want 
would see the Marcos family as, as being something that they should aspire to and somebody who they believe should lead them, should be the deciders of the policies that, that reign over their country. So it's not something that I would vote for, but I can see how others would, would see that as something that they would want for their country. Yeah, sure. It's very complex. It's interesting uh, how people have make their choices or selective uh, memories, like what they well, it, choose. And to. in terms, in in terms of uh, of the migrant worker situation with the, with the new Marcos, um, he, he's also pandered to that community as well. Now he's he's doubled down on this uh, um, saying that I believe Duterte also championed as well. He said the migrant workers are the heroes of the Philippines because they contribute so much to the GDP. It's around 10% of the GDP that come from the remittances that these people send back to the Philippines. So, you know, that's, that's political pandering. He's, he's saying like, you're our heroes, go out, earn money, send it back. And you know, if somebody calls you a hero, you're going to, nobody's immune to flattery and that can make you, want to vote for the, for the Marcos, the continuation of the Marcos regime as well. So, I mean, he's, he's not stupid. He's, he's a, he's a very politically savvy person. He grew up around it. He grew up with it and he knows how to play the game. And now for a short break. Hello listeners. We're going to be experimenting with some shorter form content under 20 minutes long. And we'd like to hear from you. Would you like to listen to shorter episodes? What would you like to hear more of or less of? Email us at podcast at talkingtaiwan.com. We also have a special announcement for all of our donors, past, present, and future. We're giving all of our donors exclusive first listening access to upcoming interviews with Karen Lin, Democratic candidate for Justice of the Civil Court in Queens, New York. Chin Chi Yang, a multidisciplinary artist who was recently inducted into the New York Foundation for the Arts Hall of Fame. Michelle Kuo, an attorney, activist, and author of Reading with Patrick, which is a runner-up for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and the Goddard Riverside Stefan Russo Book Prize for Social Justice. Ed Lin, author of Death Doesn't Forget, and Joe Henley, author of Migrante. If you want exclusive access to these episodes and more, support Talking Taiwan by making a contribution to our GoFundMe campaign. We are so grateful for our growing listenership and all the support that we've been receiving. Now, back to the episode. Well, the question is if he's uh, doing anything further to protect their interests because... As we know, a lot of the journey of migrant workers actually starts in the Philippines. Exactly. Um, to my knowledge, no, he's not doing anything uh, to change the status quo. And, and you're absolutely right. The journey starts there. The journey starts with a manpower agency that migrant workers will go to. They'll sign a contract with one of these agencies, which often involves taking out a substantial loan with a very high interest rate that they will then have to repay every single month when they come to a place like Taiwan and start to work. So there's, they're having a huge chunk of their already quite low wages taken out just to repay the loan 
And then they're paying also monthly service fees, which are split between the manpower agency in the Philippines and then a brokerage agency in Taiwan. And so all of these things conspire to just whittle away at the wages of the migrant workers to the point where after their three-year term of service is up, the first three-year term of service, often they're very lucky if they have broken even during that time and they have to sign up again for another three-year term of service. Now, this varies from person to person and depending on the type of work they do because people who work in factories um, in Taiwan, they can earn more. They're covered by the Labor Standards Act, so they actually get paid for things like overtime and uh, just the wage, their wages are higher. Uh, caregivers who work in private homes are not covered by the Labor Standards Act, so they get no overtime pay. They have nothing in the way of regular time off or any time off at all. There's no provision for that. The same goes with uh, deep sea fishermen as well. They're not covered by the Labor Standards Act either. So, no, again, no overtime pay, no provisions for days off. Very few protections as far as their labor rights under the law. And the Philippines governments, uh, subsequent governments in the Philippines have not really challenged any of this. Um, the only government that's really stood up for anyone is the government of Indo Indonesia, um, which in March of this year actually stopped sending caregivers to Taiwan uh, in protest of the conditions here, which yes, really says that. something, mm -hmm. which really mm -hmm. says something. And what they're asking for is that the caregivers who are, of course, um, they're, they're largely women coming from Indonesia. Um, in fact, I, I've never met a male care, caregiver uh, here in Taiwan yet. Uh, they shoulder all of the fees involved in getting them to Taiwan and setting them up uh, for, for work here, which can amount to thousands of dollars U.S., what the Indonesian government is asking is that those fees be shouldered by the people who hire these women, uh, by the, by the organizations or by the individuals who need to hire them, they should shoulder those fees. This is not a popular sentiment in Taiwan, um, for obvious reasons there. And I've only met, I've only come across one brokerage agency in the entire country. Uh, that's in Taichung. They're called Maygod. And they're the only agency thus far that I've come across who are also actively encouraging the, uh, the employers to shoulder all those placement fees, transportation fees, and monthly service fees as well. They're the only ones asking the employers to shoulder all of those fees. And this has made them hugely unpopular with the other brokerage agencies in the country. And in fact, their membership within the national brokerage agency was actually revoked for a time just for them taking, uh, taking this stance. So in terms of the Philippines, no, they're not challenging the status quo. They're very much looking to keep it alive uh, because it seems Marcos does not want to jeopardize in any way these remittances that, as I said before, account for such a very large percentage of their national GDP. Indonesia standing up, uh, the Philippines, not so much. 
What was um, interesting about your book was it's very descriptive in a lot of the scenes. So I'm wondering, did you actually do any site visits to go to like the fishing boats, the factory dormitories, or other scenes that you'd had to write for the book? Yeah, I did vi- visit some uh, different fishing harbors, um, and to get on the boats was not something that I was able to do. Um, you could get you can get close to them, you can get right up alongside them, but eventually, when people find out what you're doing there, and and I I kind of stand out <laughs> uh, down there. Um, I don't look like somebody who works there. I don't look like somebody who belongs there. I look like either a tourist or somebody who's lost, or somebody who's sniffing around, which I am. Um, That's exactly what I'm doing. But when it comes to the latter, somebody who's sniffing around, that's not necessarily somebody who's welcome uh, around there. And and they might encourage me to leave. But I can just walk around and I can talk to people down there. I can talk to the fishermen. And and that's what I did. I, I, I went to different harbors around Taiwan and I just to kind of take in the scene and learn as much as I possibly could about their living conditions, working conditions, and just the environments that they were working in. In terms of factories, I had a few different uh, contacts of, of people who were working in different factories for different companies. And they would send me pictures of their dorms and the conditions that they were living in, which which varied a lot. Some of them were quite all right as far as dormitory living goes. Uh, some of them, it ranged all the way to the horrific, um, the horrifically cramped, uh, dirty, unmaintained. Um, that's anything you can possibly imagine. And in terms of... Uh, also, in caregivers working in private homes. Again, I had contacts there because um, I wouldn't necessarily be invited into private homes to see, especially if the conditions were terrible. But they would send me pictures um, that they would send from their phones. Um, some women, for example, they would be uh, locked within the, their rooms at night, and they would send me pictures of one woman sent me a picture like her room was just four bare walls and uh, futon thrown down on the floor. It was essentially a prison cell that she was living in and she would be locked in there all night. There was no, uh, there was no bathroom. Uh, the bathroom was outside, but the door was locked and she would be let out in the morning when it was time to go to work, when it was time to get started again. And so I, I had these various contacts and resources that I was able to um, utilize in order to, to, to paint the picture of these, these different scenarios that, that migrant workers uh, encounter when they, when they come to work uh, in Taiwan, ranging from the fairly normal to, as I said, the absolutely awful, terrible, horrific conditions that some of them end up enduring. And did you map out the general plot line and decide the general trajectory of the novel before you started writing? I'm just curious about your writing process in this case. Yeah, in this case, I did have uh, a general idea of, of where I wanted the, the story to to begin and to, and to go. And the, the only thing I wasn't exactly sure of 
was at the very beginning was was the ending. I wasn't sure how I wanted it to end. Do I do I want a happy ending, or do I want it to portray the very dark reality of, of a lot of people here? And I didn't feel that a happy ending was was accurate. I didn't feel like it would accurately portray um, the reality that that had pervaded through my reporting work, which was that. Unfortunately, there is not a lot of hope for for some of these people. Um, there is not a bright future involved in the work that they do. There is purely survival, basically. The best they can hope for is to continue to work and to survive. And to hopefully have a little bit left over at the end of all of it to send back to the Philippines or wherever they may come from for their families, because often these uh, overseas Filipino workers in particular, they're providing either for uh, their own children uh, back home or and a spouse, uh, providing for their own parents, providing for the parents of their spouse. Uh, sometimes it's just a whole large extended family that is depending on these, these remittances. So they, they have to keep going. They can't be like a normal middle-class worker who, you know, if you get tired of your job or you get tired of your boss, you can just say, you know what? Screw it. I'm out. I quit. I'll go do something else. They don't have that option for a number of reasons. Um, not the least of which is that often is the case here with, uh, with migrant workers is that their documents are seized by either their broker or their employer. So their passport, their ARC, their alien resident certificate, um, work permit, all of that is held by somebody else. So they can't just quit because they can't just leave their vital legal documents behind. And most likely that person, their employer or their broker is not going to part with them willingly. They're just going to hold on to them. So they, they can't quit. They can't, um, or they can quit, but then they kind of have to go underground or they have to know a safe place such as a shelter that they can go to, which they might not even be aware of. So as I was writing the book, I, I kind of came to know that the ending is going to be, have to be somewhat bleak um, just to show what is actually happening here. And, and I know it's, it's not like an enjoyable, fulfilling ending for people to read and they don't leave. They probably don't, put my book down and say, Oh yeah. Like I feel so refreshed and relieved. And I'm so glad that everything is back to normal. Everything's, everything's great. Everything's good. The problem is solved. The problem is not solved in reality. So why should it be solved in my book? So uh, without giving away the ending to people who might not have, have read it, um, the ending will probably leave a, a sour taste in your mouth. And that, and that's exactly what it's meant to do. Um, I hope when people put the book down, it angers them because this is something that is not just happening here in Taiwan. This is happening in the States. This is happening in Canada. This is happening all over Europe, all over the Middle East, Australia, New Zealand. It's happening anywhere that labor is imported from Southeast Asia or wherever it might be imported from for the sole reason that it's cheaper. It's cheaper for big corporations or individuals or whomever to hire these people because 
we've decided as a global society that it's okay to pay this person less because they come from a place where the standard of living is lower or the cost of living is lower, I should say. It's okay to bring them here where the cost of living is higher and pay them a little bit more than they might earn back home. And to me, that reeks of classism, that, that reeks of, well, it reeks of something that doesn't smell very good. Uh, I'll, I'll just say that much. Um, to me, I would say if you want to bring somebody halfway around the world or to, or to your country to work, pay them the same as everybody else and don't treat them differently. Unless a two-tiered society, a sort of labor apartheid is, is what you want. And that's what we have here. And that's what we have in many places. We have a two-tiered or a multi-tiered society where somebody's labor is considered less valuable than somebody else's based on their passport, the color of their skin, based on the economic circumstances of the place that they come from. And the amount of uh, mental gymnastics that it takes to get to that point where you say, yeah, that's fine. That's okay. I, I have no moral objection to that. I don't see how that happens. Um, unless you just break it down to an oversimplification of, oh, well, they would be earning less if they stayed home. Okay, I can see, I can see that argument. And I can see how you would say, well, yeah, like they should sort that out in their own country. They should find a way to raise wages. But often the reason why a country, a certain country such as the Philippines or, or Indonesia is economically disadvantaged. I mean, there's a whole history often of like colonialism, of foreign powers invading, raping the land doing all sorts of nefarious things that have put that country in that position in the first place. So it's the fault. It's it, everyone. No, nobody does. Nobody does not have blood on their hands in this situation. In my eyes, it's multi-layered. There's a whole lot of different directions in which we can point the finger and, and assign blame for how this has all come about. But in my opinion, the way out, the way forward is not what we're doing now. It's not to just, oh, pay them just a little bit more, just enough to assuage our guilt over bringing them over here to do work that other people, that people here just basically do not want to do. That's not the way forward. The way forward is to empower people economically, through education, through all of the ways that we would empower ourselves in our own country. If we're going to bring people here, let's really help them. Not just by throwing them a tiny little morsel of economic hope, which the brokerage agencies then quickly take away. They quickly yank that away from them and leave them with not very much at all.
Well, thank you very much. You actually answer like all these questions I want to ask you. Like, sorry, I can I go on ra- I go on rants no, about a, this sometimes. That's amazing. You make my job easier because I would I. I had to ask on my list was how did you want it to end? What do you want people to take away from it? What did you learn? Um, okay, so the question that um, good night I have everybody that we have talked about. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Thank you very much. We're all done now. Uh, could you tell me about um, Professor Jose Maria de Vega the and the guidance that he supported and offered you in writing this book? Because I noticed that you acknowledged him, and I'm sure he was a big part because you had some colloquial uh, Filipino terms, like Tagalog terms in the book? Professor Jose Mario de la Vega, he's an author and professor in, in Manila, and he's he's taught in various places. I believe he was teaching in Malaysia for a while, and he's actually a longtime friend of Jasmine Sanchez, who I mentioned earlier, who is the woman who's responsible for me becoming aware of issues regarding migrant workers in Taiwan in the first place. And I needed, of course, um, guidance um, in terms of of writing about Manila, about writing about um, Filipino characters as well. Um, because, to state the obvious, it's not my culture. It's not. It's not some place that I grew up. I, I did quite a lot of research, but that doesn't change the fact that I'm not from there, and it's not my culture. So I needed, and it's not my language. Um. I just picked up very basic Tagalog on my, on my way there, you know, and, you know, I've been traveling there for music and stuff. So, I mean, the first thing people teach you is how to swear. That's, that's all, that's what you learn when you first go to a place, especially when you go there to play metal shows. Um, so I, I asked Jasmine if she knew anybody who could help me out with that. And right away she recommended, uh, professor De La Vega. So I, I got in contact, um, with him. He's a very colorful character. He's, he's very much, He's very much a radical, um, and he's very much he's he's very outspoken, very brave, um, and he writes he writes a, a lot about a lot of dissident pieces in in various media, and he and he has various books out um, of of essays railing against uh, the politics in his homeland and and things like the Marcos now dynasty and Duterte and and, and all of that. And so I thought, okay, this is, this is a good fit. This is a good fit for me. This is a rebel. This is, this is somebody who's, who's not afraid. This is, this is somebody who we can relate to each other. And so, yeah, we, we corresponded. And um, he helped me out with, because I use some like untranslated Tagalog uh, throughout the book. And he, he helped me with that as well, because um, at, at first I was just kind of, doing it through research by looking up different phrases and hoping that these were accurate, but not really knowing if they are. I obviously needed to talk to somebody who's fluent in the language and it's their first language. Uh, so he was absolutely instrumental with, with all of that. And yeah, I, I was very lucky that the Jasmine put me in touch with him. It was very fortunate. And, um, he's, he was absolutely, uh, yeah, indispensable in, in whipping the book up into its final shape. Uh, did he help you with any of the um, character development or the perspective of the characters? Because you mentioned that 
uh, you know, stating the obvious again, like you're not from the Philippines, that's not your experience. He didn't actually have too much to say on on that front. Um, I did ask him, I, I did ask him, like, to be brutally honest with me. Um, I said, don't worry about it. I'm not going to take offense. I, I know this is, I, I'm writing about your homeland, your people. So you tell me what's up. I'm not here to tell you what's up. Like, don't. And and I, and I was hiring him, so I, I didn't want him to be to think that because I'm kind of employing him and I'm paying him a certain fee for this subject that he has to be deferential. I said, don't be deferential. That's the last thing that I want. I'm paying you to not be deferential to me. If I'm making mistakes, just say, hey, this is wrong. This is straight up wrong. You need to change this. This doesn't work. This isn't right. Um. But uh, he was he was actually very um, supportive. He was very complimentary of, of the way that I that I had done it. Um, which is not to say that's the be all and end all, and that he's the only opinion in the Philippines that, that matters. But um, he was he was very supportive um, of of what I had done. So I was I was quite happily surprised by uh, pleasantly surprised by by him saying all that. And, um, but I, I'm really glad I got the chance to, to work with him. Um, and it's, it's, it's an interesting relationship because, you know, it's, it's entirely virtual at this point. I've never met the man, but, um, I feel like I know him. We, we've talked so much. I feel like I know him quite well. I feel like we relate to each other really well. So hopefully the next time I'm able to go down there, you know, the world's, opening up again we're able to travel again i at the very least i gotta buy him a beer or something so i gotta meet up or a coffee or whatever his beverage of choice is and meet him meet his he's got a he's got quite a large uh family he's got a lot of kids he's a very warm he's a very warm uh intelligent and fiery individual um if if people out there want to learn about like dissident politics in the philippines uh look him up on amazon check out his check out his stuff great um is there anything else that you'd like to share about this book or something that you experienced or came across in the process of uh, researching or writing about it um this was a story that it, it wasn't one that i sought out it was it was one that was placed in front of me um, by Jasmine Sanchez, and uh, I'm I consider myself very fortunate that she did that, that she chose me to do that because she and the very the the many women and men from the migrant worker community who opened up to me and who shared their stories to me, they opened my eyes, they opened my heart, they opened my mind, and they exposed me to a reality that I had to that point been largely ignorant of. And it made me realize that if I had been ignorant of what's going on beneath the surface of society here, of this very large portion of society that makes this society work so well, there must be many, many others who are in the same boat and who are also not aware of what's happening. And it's not any fault of theirs that they're not aware of it. It's just because it's so out of sight, out of mind. 
caregivers. You see them when they're out at the park with their elderly ward, taking them for a walk, but then they're mostly within these private homes. You don't see them very often. Factory workers live in the dorm, work in the factory. You don't see them very often. People who work on the fishing boats, you certainly don't see them unless you hang around the harbor because they're on the, they're living on the boats, they're working on the boats. You don't see them very often, out of sight, out of mind. So I was very fortunate that she summoned me to Taipei Main Station that day, sat me down, and basically said, look, see what's happening. This is happening every day. You might not see it every day, but this is happening every day. And they don't exist, you know, they don't give, they don't exist to give my life context or give my life purpose. They exist to give their own lives purpose. They exist to live their own lives. And that's, that's all they're asking. That's all they're not, that's not what they're asking for. That's what they, they're working towards on their own. They just needed help from somebody who was in a position to offer them some, some help in telling those stories. I happen to be in that position. I happen to have the privilege to be in that position. And so what I wanted for this book and for any ongoing projects that I do in this sphere is to be able to use my privilege to put us more on equal footing. Use my privilege to give them privilege. The same privileges that I enjoy and that I probably take for granted every single day. So that was the purpose of this book, and that's, that's what I hope it can play some at least small role in doing, is, is helping to share their stories and to, to ra- help these people raise themselves up. Because sometimes we all need help from somebody who's in a position of relative power, relative privilege. And so I hope that's what this book is going to play at least some small part in doing. So whether you speak Mandarin primarily as, as your first language, whether you speak English, I hope uh, people will pick up the book, read it, learn something about how things work here and also about how things work all around the world in terms of, of, of migrant labor. And think about that the next time you see that person from Indonesia or the Philippines walking an elderly person through the park. Think about it the next time you see some seafood in the, in the market and you say, oh, that's a good price. That's, that's cheap. There's a reason why it's cheap. There's a reason why it doesn't cost very much. It's because the people who, who brought it there are not very well paid or looked after. Think about it the next time you buy any sort of product that comes from a factory. There is a price to be paid for everything everything that we consume. It's just an unfortunate reality at this moment that most of that cost is passed on to the people who make these things or provide these vital services. We get the discount, the people who consume them, the people in relative positions of relative privilege and power who consume these things. We're the ones that reap the benefits. They're the ones that pay the cost. We just don't see it. We're not allowed to see it. We're not supposed to see it. I hope this book will make people see it.
Right, and correct me if I wrong if I'm wrong, but I, my understanding is that is a portion of the proceeds or all the proceeds of this book going to benefit some uh, organizations or communities? Yeah, like that's exactly one. right. Yeah, that's you're exactly right. Um, I am taking all of my cut of the sales uh, from both the English version and the Mandarin version. And I'm donating them to the Elon Migrant Fishermen's Union and also to the Serve the People Association. And these are two organizations that I've worked with uh, a lot during the course of my reporting work. Um, they've helped me introduce me to a lot of different, a lot of the migrant workers that I've interviewed and spoken to over the last several years. And they're doing great work in the community to raise awareness of, of these same issues that we've talked about all throughout this show. And they're also doing tireless daily work to help the migrant workers that have come upon hard times here in Taiwan to get back on their feet and file legal cases and find new employment, anything you might imagine. So I'm taking my entire cut of the sales from both versions of the book and donating them to, to them in the hopes that uh, they'll be able to use whatever donations I might be able to make uh, to, to help more people. Well, that's incredible, Joe. Thank you so much for all the work that you're doing to bring these issues to a larger audience to let people know about what's going on. Um, how can people learn more about you and purchase your books? Um, perhaps you can give us some links and we can put them on our website for this episode. Uh, sure. I guess the easiest way is to go to my website, uh, www.jwhenley, uh, dot com, And that's got links to all my books, all my publications, uh, basic um, films, music videos from my band. Um, everything I do, basically, is, is all my entire life is, is on that website. So anything you want to check out uh, that I do, uh, you can just... Uh, head there and you can find also my, my, all my socials, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I don't tweet very much. I tweet very infrequently, but I'm pretty active on Facebook and uh, Instagram. And if anybody ever wants to get in touch by email or socials, um, please, please feel free. I'm always up for a, for a conversation. Great. I want to thank you so much for taking time of your schedule to be on Talking Taiwan. It's my pleasure, absolutely. I'm, I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of the show, and I'm, I'm always happy to, to be on, so thank you. I've been speaking with Joe Henley, freelance writer and author of Migrante. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATOA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATOA was founded in 1988 to evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity to oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality, to fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs, to contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan, to reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NATOA, visit their website www.natwa.com Now it's time for you to show us some love. We just found out that you can rate us on Spotify. Or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible, leave us a review there. 
it helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.